so why don't we get started? So I am happy to be here today um, for this episode of our philosophy of education podcast with Garrett Smiley of Sorit Schools and Jeffrey Emmerich. Am I saying your name right, Jeffrey? Yes, that's exactly right. Jeffrey Emmerich from uh, Rock by Rock. So welcome, Garrett and Jeffrey. Thanks. Thanks for having us. It should be fun. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, so why don't we just um, start with quick introductions? So um, can um, can both of you just tell us? Why don't we start with Jeffrey? We'll go kind of in order of, of the age of your clients of your of your, uh, of, of, uh, <laughs> of your students. Why don't we start with Jeffrey? Can you just tell us a little bit about your story, about um, and then about about Rock by Rock and what you do there? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I'll, I'll try not to do the entire life history. Um, <laughs> I. Uh, <laughs> uh, Started as a, I started out as a teacher. Um, I worked on the on New York and national team at Teach for America for a while doing teacher uh, training and curriculum. Um, and, you know, I, I, I started to feel like I think we're having an impact, but I feel really removed from kids and families and communities. And so um, and I also felt like, you know, a lot of what we were doing was keeping teaching looking very similar to the way it's looked for a really long time. And yep. it's like, we're not doing enough to prepare kids to thrive in our creator economy, like build problem solving, critical thinking, um, things like that. And so I wanted to be doing more of that work. So I left Teach for America. Um, I started working with um, charter school network um, in the Northeast, Achievement First. And it was a project called Greenfield, where we're basically answering the question, if you could build any, any new school in a Greenfield based on everything we've learned in ed reform, like what would you build? And so we opened an entirely new K-8 school model um, that we built, which was like entirely different, more self-directed, personalized, project-based, expeditionary. And um, there were a lot of elements where like kids were on fire with their learning. Um, and not surprisingly, they were the project-based, personalized, uh, expeditionary components of that. And folks would come visit and be like, this is awesome, but we don't know how to scale this. Um, and our teachers were saying things like, this is, this is great. Like we love doing this. This is really hard to plan. And so we scaled that to five schools in three States, but it felt like it was not going to be a solution that was going to reach enough kids. And so Sung A, uh, my co-founder and I, um, you know, left thinking like, okay, what, what can we do to take the promise of this type of learning and just make it much more accessible for any teacher in any setting? Um, because project based, like we didn't invent project based learning. It's been around for a really long time. It also is really hard to scale. Like the lesson we had at Greenfield was not, you know, unique to that. And so basically we started Rock by Rock to try and get more real world, rigorous, highly engaging, relevant project based learning experiences out to kids and teachers in any setting. We're starting with K5 because we think if you can really start to build that mental muscle in the early grades, it's going to put you on a catalytic path for middle and high school. And so, you know, Rock by Rock is um, a growing library of project-based experience, uh, project-based learning experiences. That's awesome. There's so much there that I want to ask you about, but unfortunately we have to introduce Garrett. No, I'm just um, <laughs> Garrett, do you, Garrett, do you want to, do you want to do the same thing? Um, just tell us a little bit of your story and then tell us about Sora schools. Sure. I'll give the quick version. Um, so we're very complimentary to Rock by Rock. What We've noticed many of the similar things on how much uh, different types of learning, especially more active learning, expeditionary learning connects with students. Um, but unfortunately, in the high school age range, people uh, start to say things like it's time to get serious, right? Oh, college is right around the, you know, right around the door, whatever. So uh, 
we've taken this approach where we want to do kind of the hard thing that most people ignore. So we want to jump right into high school and give kids uh, these active learning experiences, but more importantly, this transdisciplinary approach to education, where I think creating these meaningful learning experiences are even more important in adolescence, given all the biological, cultural, we can debate it, um, that makes them much more rebellious and much more interested in uh, developing their worldview than complying with the adults. So um, yeah, we've noticed very similar things, I guess, to, to do it in the wrong order. Um, I went to a lot of different schools growing up. So I, uh, online schools, what uh, more traditional schools, more hippie schools in you know, Seattle, those types of things. Um, so I was a military brat. Um, and kind of as a coping mechanism, I made a lot of notes because they were all so very different and some of them worked for me. Most of them very much did not. Um, and I just got very interested in learning outside of the classroom. So I started pouring myself into various interests. The main one that drove me, especially through high school, was physics. And it was entirely self-taught being at the time in central deep Texas. I was not exactly being challenged nor finding a community of physics nerds. Um, so really the internet had to be that for me. Um, so mm -hmm. I had a, a deep personal connection to this sort of uh, the free nature of the internet and how it can empower curious students. Um, but when you combine that fact with what we noticed in the last few years, um, that the internet was changing everything, not just in terms of content, but in community and also how we are running our organizations in our communities. So um, uh, in 20, what, I don't know what to call it, 2016 probably is really the first time I would say uh, scaling this sort of transformative education was possible because you really couldn't do it without Zoom, without all these, um, these various tools to facilitate. So what we consider ourselves and our mission is bringing this um, this progressive active learning experience to the world where in most cases until very recently the only way to receive a high fidelity version of it was if you could afford and if you lived close to um, you know one of these great brick and mortar schools that was so, all so, so, orders sorry but. no that was perfect <laughs> I mean I mean you, you have a, um, I mean something that both of you talked about Jeffrey like very directly and Garrett you just alluded to it at the end is so there there's this there's this kind of model of learning or maybe it's like a family of models of learning of which which project-based learning might just be might just be one instance where, where it's like discovery learning expeditionary learning project-based learning um integrative learning real world experiences that in certain contexts seems to work very well and has and has for quite some time this has been around for you know over 100 years this this kind of model um actually roughly 100 years i think i can't remember when when uh kilpatrick published the project-based method article but it was it was about 100 years ago um and um and it's always been hard to scale and so jeffrey this is like one like one of the premises that of, of your kind of company is like this seems to be going mm -hmm. really well but like it's hard to scale and and garrett you just said like as you just said like until recently like the only way to get this was to be in a very very local situated community that had kind of mastered this I'm, I'm reading into what you said and you're trying to kind of like make this an online thing that's kind of more accessible um what can i don't know who wants to start but can either of you just say more about like what what is the challenge here so just say more about the like what is the pedagogy what is it that's so special about it and then why is that so hard to scale why does it seem like you kind of like need a unicorn community to get it and um and yeah let's just start there I can take a shot at it first. I think yeah. 
there are two very, very, very important things to make this work well. Uh, the pedagogy, I don't like to get too dogmatic and put too many labels on it. For us, it's trying to connect learning to the real world and to a student's worldview, their budding worldview. That's the mm -hmm. most important thing for me. So we can do project-based, we call our classes expeditions, we do, and we, we borrow from all these, these different philosophies, but really at the end of the day, it's how do we get students in an exciting learning community where excellence is the standard and allow them to be in the driver's seat of their own education. This is just as much of a technological and an engineering problem as it is, uh, you know, any, any other category of problem, actually, whatever, whatever um, category you want to throw on it. I genuinely believe, and this is because I'm a bit of a computer science nerd, but I genuinely believe you cannot do this and make it scalable, successful if you don't have tools for educators to lean on. And there have been no really good tools for cataloging student interests and ensuring that they both get the, the breadth of experience, breadth and depth of experience you would expect for my context in a high school education, while also allowing them to craft their own journey and uh, choose the context and the, and the content that's most exciting to them. So usually it's been, that's been the, the false dichotomy. Either you have a more traditional school with you know, no excuses, uniforms, whatever, or you allow a shoes off progressive school where we don't actually have academic standards. I genuinely believe tools, especially software, um, can fix that. And then the second point that I mentioned up front is uh, how, if you have this active learning environment, if you, if you really do believe having a community of, of learners, having discussions with each other is a core part of the pedagogy, having a global substrate, having a global community, a global school um, is the best way to do that. And that's what online schools are particularly good at. And the fact these tools, Zoom, et cetera, are catching up with us. Um, and plus the software elements I was mentioning before, it feels like a convergence that's super special, not even to mention the changing expectations um, in a post-COVID world. So so before we go to Jeffrey, can I just um, ask a couple of follow-ups? So, um, I mean, it sounds like you have a thesis somewhat similar to certain things that I, I tend to think are, which is some, something like, um, look, there's stuff that the students should be learning in school. Um, there's a kind of, there's a certain amount of breadth um, of coverage and a certain amount of depth of experience that like, you know, it's important that school delivers. Um, and and it's very hard to kind of systematize and track that um, if you're going to let the student like really craft their own journey and be in and kind of make choices in the curriculum. And so um, um, it's like, how do you kind of like relate a kind of like some kind of learning map to, um, to a structure where the student is extremely autonomous and making all sorts of interest-based decisions and pursuing real world projects and kind of that mapping, kind of like extracting like something like a curricular map from something like an organic, ecologically valid student experience where they're in the driver's seat. Like that, is that the thing that you think software can help with where, where um, you know, you can like, you know, track what the student's done in a kind of organic way and, and, um, and help them kind of like go through this map, and, but, but not in a rigid way. Like this is the kind of adaptation of the software. Exactly. We could go through exactly how we do it, if that's a curiosity of the audience. But the super quick version is you cannot with paperwork. Let's really boil this down into the simplest parts and uh, create a straw man here. But if it's a thousand chapters you want a kid to learn through the high school journey and you want to make sure that they master each of them, allowing students to carve whatever path is most interesting with a few dependencies, as you said, map is likely, but if you allow them to go through that journey, whoever is most interesting to them, you cannot do it with paperwork because there's literally more 
uh, combinations, more permutations in that way, then I've done the math at one point, then atoms in the known universe. It's like absurd, right? But that's a trivial exercise for computers. Computers are really good at tagging and organizing information. So uh, I will not be the classic you know, Silicon Valley person who thinks computers are going to solve education because it is ultimately a human problem. But this is a, a categorizing problem that computers are very, very good at. We just don't use them properly. So uh, I, that's sort of the really quick version is what we do is we have these few hundred expectations that we have both over habits of mind that we call abilities and also content. And every six weeks, we just have the students commit to a different set of experiences that will teach them things or, or that will help them discover things that they haven't learned yet. So that is very simple when you put it that way and you use a computer to organize that information, but that would be literally impossible to do it without um, technology and software. I would love to hear more about that. Um, but Jeffrey, how, how about you? Like, what's the kind of, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the kind of like, mm -hmm. like what is project-based learning or what is expeditionary learning and like, why is it hard to scale? Yeah. Um, so, uh, similar, some similar thoughts to Garrett, but, um, I would say the, the point about like being real world relevant, um, and like solving a real world problem, I think is, is one of the key things. Like I'm doing something that matters, um, in the world and matters to me. And I think something that we really focus on a lot in our projects is that every project culminates in kids doing something that empowers them to take action in the world that's either advocating for change making a difference in their community um coming up with a solution that can have an impact because you know a lot of times kids ask like well why am i doing this and there's really no so that it's like well it's so that i can turn this in and get a check at the top of my paper and so we really want we really want the question the answer to that be why am i doing this it's because one i'm invested in the topic and two like i'm actually going to make a difference in the world um, and what we've found with our kids is that like feeling that they have that legitimate agency and power to make an impact is just a massive motivator. Um, and I would say one of the, a couple of the things that make it really hard is to make something really authentically real world. Like you need to have a certain level of content expertise to plan that. Um, and you need to have the time to plan that. And so for teachers who are really time strapped and have limited resources to really go deep and plan those like that those all of those experiences for kids is often prohibitive um a lot of programs out there are expensive um and so you know it comes down to like time capacity and training and i agree with garrett like teachers need tools and so what we're trying to do is provide sort of the projects uh as a jumping off point so that you can customize for your kids, you can give kids choice over what they're learning, but you're not having to plan it all from scratch. Um, and I think the other thing that I'd say is that a lot of curriculum is linear. Like here's yeah. your scope and sequence. You do this, you do this, you do this, school year's over. And so what we're trying to do is like set up the tools and resources as, as like a library where kids and teachers can choose. Like this is the topic I'm most interested in. Um, and that might be like, addressing traumatic brain injury or elephant conservation or, you know, something relating related to like sugar and diet. Um, and then you can figure out how you want to take action. Do you want to write a letter to Congress? Do you want to produce a podcast? Do you want to create uh, a, a news, uh, like a news, a news segment? And so you have choice over both what you're learning and then how you're going to actually manifest that learning and take action. Um, and I think, you know, what we have found from our teachers is that 
having that as a starting place makes it much easier for them to implement this than if they were planning it from scratch. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you said when you were talking about um, what you were doing at Achievement First at the, at the Charter School Network, the, the Greenfield School, yeah, um, is that teachers say that it's hard to plan. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, so even though it was working, like, like kids were learning and everybody thought it was great. Like the teachers yeah. were like, man, this is really hard. And I think that, I mean, it, it just general, it's generally has seemed true to me anecdotally. And my sense is from surveying the history that this has been true kind of more than anecdotally, more systematically yeah. that um, kind of progressive educators, alternative educators um, often don't um do what you guys are doing in, in the sense of um kind of like putting in the work to make a curriculum i mean like there's a, there's a way that like like not like a linear curriculum but like you know like tools resources like like the, the kind of like like these experiences need to be crafted teachers need support with them um and traditional educators often do like there's like mcguffey readers or there's you know the, the common core standard that's like something there's like a whole textbook industry right um and like i, I think that, that that's always been and I think that there's re- I mean, part of the reason for that is that I think that progressive educators sometimes are skeptical of kind of curriculum and content, but it sounds like what you guys are both doing in different ways is like, no, like we believe in this pedagogy, but we think that it needs to be like engineered and supported and it needs its own kind of content and structures and frameworks. And that's, that's like a very specific thing. It's not just like an ideology or an approach. And until you have that, like, like people are going to have to reinvent the wheel every time. Is that a fair characterization of, I mean, Garrett, you're saying something a little bit different just about the kind of possibility that this unlocks, but is that kind of aligned with at least what you're saying, Jeffrey? Yeah, I, I would say it is. Like there are versions of project-based learning where you've got like a small group of kids and a master teacher who's been doing this for a really long time and they come up with a driving question together and then they like just sort of co-create yeah. this experience real time. And like, that's amazing for that group of kids and that teacher, that is also like something that's out of reach for a lot of folks, given the constraints that we named. And so I think what we're trying to do is thread the needle between still empowering you to have the agency and choice to customize for your kids and contacts and give kids, put kids in the driver's seat, but not also be at the other, at the other end of the spectrum, which is like, everything has to be like hundred percent authentic and in the moment generated, which is amazing. But also I think part of the reason why PBL hasn't scaled. Um, so, so yeah, so yes, I think to your question, I so agree with that. I think largely in the progressive realm, if we want to identify with that as a group, uh, curriculum development is grossly underrated. People think it's so easy to make something interesting. That's why I led by saying, I don't like to be too dogmatic because at the end of the day, you just got to make the stupid thing interesting, right? (laughs) Use whatever you need to make it interesting. You're probably going to have to go through four or five revisions. But that's okay, because it is an extremely hard thing. And especially given, Jeffrey, I love that we have a similar ethos around this, but when you try to create something grounded in the real world, there simply aren't a lot of resources and there aren't a lot of best practices. There aren't a lot of things to steal because we've been stuck in this subject scoped reality for uh, for who knows how long, you know, hundreds of years now. And so uh, we kind of have to we have to give it the proper respect that this is the right way to do it, but it's going to be incredibly hard and it's okay to not reinvent the wheel every time. We've gone to a full library model, which we caught some, I'll say flack for, uh, for a bit, but it's just what needs to happen because the first version is always bad. How do you get to version two, three, four as quickly as possible? Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, so the idea is 
um, um, like there's the kind of like basic idea of the learning approach. And then there's like, you know, how do you kind of systematize this? How do you document it? How do you kind of like, there's a kind of engineering problem of how you actually implement it. And that that's, you know, that doesn't just follow deductively from the ideas. That's its own kind of work stream. I mean, I, I totally agree with that. Um, but I think most listeners here will know that I come from the Montessori space where there's like both an ethos of like, you follow the child or else you're a terrible person. That's not really the ethos, not that you're a terrible person, but like you, you follow the child, like it's like really child-driven learning. Um, but like there's a curriculum and there's a structure and like, you know, educators are kind of environment designers and there's an expertise to that. And, and there's a lot of opinions about how to do that right. And um, it sounds like you guys are both working in the same kind of space and constraints and spirit, which is, which is really, really cool. Um, um, what are, I mean, I, I mean, you, Garrett, you've talked about kind of iterating and, you know, the first version sucks and you get to version two and version three. Um, Jeffrey, you've kind of, you talked about, um, you know, just kind of like your experience with the greenfield and kind of iterating off of that. Just like what, what are some things that you've learned doing this over the last few years? Um, I don't know how long you've been going at rock by rock. It sounds like a while. Um, but um, for however long you've been doing it, what are some things that you've learned? What are some what are some what are some surprises you've encountered? Um, uh, why don't we do Garrett and then Jeffrey? My mind went a thousand different places when you said that, <laughs> but I think to continue the theme, uh, yeah, I think it's very important for educators to have something to work off of, but also to make it super clear uh, that it can be flexible. So this is a template where, you know, this is here to empower you, but we are going to do things like A-B test curriculum. You're going to, we're going to have, uh, you know, feedback on what worked and what didn't. We're going to have essential questions. We're, we're going to standardize some things because uh, it's simply too hard and too time intensive to build it from the ground up every time. And why would you throw out an experience kids are loving? So I think that's a big one. The second is just, you can't, over-engineer human relationships. Like at, at the end of the day, every school needs to be relationship-led. The best practices of corporate around, you know, having how often you should have one-on-ones and the, you know, the importance of those and all, like applies to education as well. Don't get it wrong. So having that advisory model is um, super, super important. And that sort of trust just builds so much slack into the system. Those are the two that, you know, I've talked about today at work. So those are the two in mind. <laughs> <laughs> were those were those uh, hard-earned lessons? Like, did you start off being like, we can systematize this, and then being like, oh shoot, like we need to absolutely absolutely make sure that we're systematizing relationships as well, or was it is it just like um, something that kind of emerged more gradually than that? We made a lot of the classic, more progressive mistakes. Um, another that comes to mind. So the answer is yes. It was a hard-earned lesson, and and you just have to adapt and not be too again say it for the third time, not be too dogmatic. Um, another thing is just recognizing how important rules are, which is like a dirty word in the progressive space, but uh, kids, even teenagers, I think actually, especially teenagers really want this structure for their freedom and creativity. And they, they want to know that, uh, some rules are real and that we care as a community. Um, yeah, I think that's just having an adult, a trusted adult, especially an advisor, notice when you don't push yourself it's just such a big win even though it feels very simple kids will that it's not even disappointment but just like oh somebody you know gives a blank enough to contact me and have a conversation with me about it really builds a lot of slack into the system 
Yeah, I mean, you're starting to get at some of the, um, like, I think the fact that, it, like, there is this common pattern of, like, people interested in alternative education, it's like, like, I mean, I'm going to character, I'm going to caricature it now, so I'm not saying that this is either of you, but there, there's this kind of, like, I've, like, I've been an educator and or went to traditional schools myself, like, burn down this terrible system, like, this, this sucks, this is a prison for children, and I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm deeply sympathetic to all of these critiques. Um, just set our children free, like, let's, let's unlock them, let's, like, radical unschooling, let's let them do whatever they want, and then kind of, like, you know, a year or two or three years into that, you're just like, oh, wait, like, you know, even though the traditional system is bad, that doesn't mean that there's no system needed or no, or no, you know, that doesn't mean that all constraints are bad or that there's no kind of like relationship with a mentoring figure that could work. And um, there's a kind of like swing back in the other direction. And I mean, it's just interesting to think about kind of like beyond the sheer kind of narrative psychology of what I just described, like, why is that so hard to kind of wrap one's mind around? Um, but um, Jeffrey, how about you? What are some things that you've learned? Um. Yes, so many thoughts. Um, to your question about how long we've been around, we actually started right before the pandemic. Okay. Um, and when we started, um, we weren't like, we were trying to figure out, like uh, we started with the question of like, how do we make this type of like experiential project-based real world learning more accessible for any educator, particularly novices in any context. And we started actually with parents um, and we were like, we were like, what's the simplest version of this? Let's try like a project in a box. Um, almost entirely offline. You get a box delivered at home. It's got all the stuff in it, printed materials, hands-on. Um, pandemic hit and we raised some money and we partnered with some homeschool groups and we just sent like a project a month for free um, to those families as a way to sort of like support their learning and then also kind of learn with them and iterate with them about like what's working about this, um, what can we do differently? And it was a it was a great experience and a great partnership. And sort of the lessons that came from that were like our kids are motivation is on fire. We're like hearing different conversations at the dinner table. I'm seeing different sides of my kid in the way they're learning. Um, but like we want more. And the, the projects we sent were like an eight hour experience that were like, we want like bigger units. We want more choice. We don't need you to send, send us scissors, markers, glue, and paper. We have all that at yeah. home. Like we want yeah. the content, we want it on demand. And so basically what we pivoted to was the user feedback that came from those prototypes. And then we started getting interest from schools um, in different contexts, after school pods and things like that. So we actually just, launched our official like new online platform this past April um, as a result of that sort of uh, pivot and piloting. Um, but what I would say, um, one of the things that surprised me. Wait, wait. So you did physical kits throughout COVID and then after COVID yep. you pivoted to online? <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah. Um, it was kind of like not, you know, not what we were expecting. Um, but yeah. that was sort of, that was the, that was the path that took us. Um, yeah. uh, in, in the midst of the piloting with our homeschool families, uh, some folks from the University of Alabama, Birmingham reached out and they were like, we think this could be really beneficial for our teachers in and around Birmingham. And so we partnered with them and we actually got a grant from the U.S. Department of Ed to fund the um, MVP for the online prototype, which we then user tested with a bunch of uh, teachers and students in Birmingham this past fall. Um, and so one of the things that um, I guess was a, a pleasant surprise is that for our teachers, the curriculum itself was actually professional development um, because they were um, all of the all of the content is student facing. And so you could use it whole group, small group or in a more self-directed context. And so our teachers were saying things to us like, um, 
I never realized you could do debate in a third grade science class, but we did the debate that was part of the project and it was awesome. And I'm going to start doing like debate as a regular part of my teaching. Um, or like things like, um, uh, like my kids are now seeing like different sides of each other because they're getting to bring different strengths to the table. And I'm seeing ways that like I can structure group work and teamwork in a way that's like more collaborative by giving students different roles. And it's changing the way I'm thinking about how I structure my learning. And we saw a lot of different examples of that where just by doing something differently was sort of giving aha moments. And then teachers were proactively changing things about their practice outside of the project. And those are all things that like, we would have traditionally in the past done in a professional development session where it was like, you should do debate and you should do it this way. But it was actually so much more powerful for the teachers to have those realizations themselves based on their kids' needs and start to organically make those changes. So I think that was one of the more pleasant surprises for us was just seeing like the, the organic change in practice that came from having a chance to try on a different way of doing things. I mean, it's also just such a good example of the power of having like a specific program with specific experiences that have been designed in a specific curriculum. Um, like, I, I mean, how many times have you been to a professional development that's like progressive in nature where it's like, we're going to do active learning together. Everybody take out a piece of paper. We're going to make a paper airplane in a group. And we're going to, it's like this totally artificial thing, you know, where, where you're like, okay, like clearly there's some sort of lesson that we're supposed to be extracting from this. And then we're going to have a seminar and then reflect on it. Um, but rather than do that kind of like, you know, relatively ecologically invalid kind of thing, it's like, here is a learning experience that you can do with your students and then you can reflect on it. And we have the whole thing designed for you and it's real and it kind of teaches them something. And there's the, the pedagogy is kind of embedded in it. And then the, um, the kind of realizations flow from that. I mean, it's just an illustration of, I think, if, I, if I'm kind of understanding you right, of just some of the things that we've been talking about, about like, how hard is this to scale? Why is that kind of what's needed? What is the value of this? It just kind of brings so much specificity to it. Yeah, I think a lot of it, a lot of it is uh, progressive educators in particular, they think you just show up to a racetrack and, you know, find your way through an F1 race. It's just not going to happen. Sure. A teacher, you still have to know how to drive the car, but the car better be there and be pretty good too. So it's not to discount the expertise of this teacher or driver to beat my analogy. Um, but there has to be something there to, to meet you and accelerate you in your mission. It's just too hard to design in the moment um human development is too complicated yeah i mean i think i think you can do it so like like if you kind of look at the i'm a history buff if that's not clear from this from this conversation already but um if you kind of look at like what happened at the dewey lab school in the early 20th century where they were experimenting with things that would become some of these progressive methodologies such as project-based learning and, and discovery-based learning and they were having the children do things like you know, learning about early civilizations by building primitive structures and doing, you know, sheep shearing. And like, it was very hands-on, very experiential. Um, and it took them a while to get it right and to, and to make it work. Um, and th there were a lot of kind of like parent complaints and a lot of criticism at the beginning. And then like it, it started to really solidify and take off. And then the second that Dewey left and the second those teachers left, it kind of like fell apart again. Like it wasn't like documented, it wasn't systematized. It was kind of like a spirit and an ethos that took a while to work itself out. Um, and and that's, the, I just feel like that's the history of alternative education in this country, at least of kind of like, you know, there's this ethos and it kind of like is really hard to implement and, and it takes hold in some places and it's truly amazing when it happens. This kind of like achievement first thing that you described, Jeffrey, just sounds like a really good example of that. And it's really demanding and it's really kind of amazing. 
and it seems like very ephemeral and very hard to scale and um um like some of that some of that is because some of that is like there, there's there's something about the kind of like spirit of progressive education the pedagogy that's like that like resists that kind of scaling and that kind of resource creation and i think you've alluded to this several times garrett in terms of like rules being a dirty word or like you know systems or curriculum being kind of like looked down upon or like making mis classical mistakes as the educator and i don't really have a question here i'm just babbling i could i could raise my voice at the end and say is that not true <laughs> um but um it's just interesting yeah. <laughs> to see how you guys are i mean i think you guys are both responding to like deep pedagogical problems that like have we haven't solved yet like a, as a kind of like community of educators Agreed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes um and i will and i think i think going just back to having tools like garrett was saying um i think there are a number of approaches where you know you have your whole school trained on how to take a certain approach and then you know we all know that schools a lot of schools grapple with really high teacher turnover and then a bunch of the staff leave and then those new folks coming in haven't necessarily had the training and then the initiative doesn't have staying power. And so, you know, it's just, yes, just yeah. agreeing. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah I think ahead. there's a strange trend in general or rhetoric in progressive education. This it's like allergic reaction against codifying wisdom or whatever this, this, uh, Anti-knowledge isn't the right thing, but it's very much just like feel it out. And that's, I think, the misunderstanding of the whole shoes optional vibe of progressive education. It's not sure you should be very attendant to the students and it should be very flexible, but writing down best practices or even reading a book is not a bad thing. In fact, most of the people who, what I find ironic, I think Matt, you made a similar point. Most of the people that we deeply respect in progressive education champion these values were very you know, well-read individuals who took a lot of inspiration um, from, from other thinkers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the progressive, I mean, progressive education came out of um, a kind of deeply informed by classical education tradition. Um, 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 I want to pivot um, to my kind of last set of questions, and then um, and then we can open up to the audience or, or wrap up, or we can talk about what you guys want to talk about. Um, um, but I, I have one one more thing that I want to ask about, which is just just the online aspect in particular. So, Jeffrey, you said you just launched your online platform in April. I'm curious to hear more about that. Um, Garrett, you just kind of like part of your story was like you did a lot of different kinds of education growing up, including some kinds of online education. And, um, you know, one of your theses or kind of like, you know, theses about the kind of spaces that something happened in, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, in terms of technological convergence and development to, to enable a certain kind of learning on the internet. I, I, I'm, let me, let me phrase this question kind of provocatively. Uh, so I am very online, like capital V, capital O. Um, and I have been since I was a little kid, since like I'm 40 now. So, you know, I got on the internet in the nineties back before there were web browsers. Um, and, um, and I've always found that, there, I mean, the internet is an, is an amazing, for the things that you talked about, Garrett, community, content organizations that it's just like unbelievably rich it's this incredible wealth of resources um and including an incredible wealth of resources for a learner and i still wonder if we've tapped even like one percent of that you know in the education space just like just what like what has the internet made possible um and the software revolution made possible 
um like you know what does the future look like i, I mean it, it still feels like we're in the very baby infant days of exploring what this looks like in education i mean most you know kind of like having classes over zoom is great we do it you know we have remote with like our office is remote we do work over zoom like i don't want to knock it but it just feels like it's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of like ma being massively connected with the entire globe so i'm just curious as to kind of like what you see as the promise of the space like is it um is it going to be really transform education in the kind of way that i was just suggesting is it kind of more incremental than that like how do you think about like you both have platforms online so it's like an entire online school um like how do you think about the promise of you know the internet in terms of in rel you know relative to education and pedagogy and, and what you want to do your, your your pedagogical missions i think there's a short term there's a long term answer so i think son I, we'll take a step back i still remember the days where i was talking about physics with people across the world downloading a cool new thing called team speak and you know that era we we're just so much further than that in terms of collaboration and, and how a community can be built on the internet. So that's hugely exciting. And I do think that there's been a tipping point in 2015, 2016, 2017, whatever, where companies, even before the pandemic, the share of remote employees, even in the top companies, Microsoft, Google, whatever, whatever examples you want to pull, it was increasing. People were just finding the offices to be kind of unnecessary because whatever you quote unquote lose in, in collaboration, and I think you can mitigate most of these um, these losses, you can untether people from their desks. They can get out in the world. You don't have to commute. It's it's all these, the bull case for remote work is equally, and I think even better applied to remote education. So that's the short-term version and why I am both a remote employee and uh, really advocate this for our students as long as they design their life around it. Um, but the long-term version is it's kind of the switch from analog to digital, right? This is uh, when the classroom becomes bits, not atoms, you could say, when it becomes uh in the cloud we are like you said at day one this is one percent we are looking at a future in the next 10 years where now you can do things very easily that i'll be i'll beat up alt school for a second that they had to install cameras and whatever like wildflower schools slippers whatever you can just you can just uh passively collect huge amounts of data on how to best support students when the classroom is online. And so that's one thing you can have a global community, you can connect students to each other's right when they need it based on these implicit signals. So it is just hugely exciting where technology can mesh with pedagogy over the next 10 years. Um, but that's more the long-term case. We're still working on that. The short term is the bull case for remote work plus some. <laughs> yeah, I am a big fan of cameras in classrooms and students wearing slippers. So, so we can talk about I that love too. It, but it's just, but that's yeah, hard, I mean, right? I, it's I, so much easier when you have zoom and you have all the plugins and the APIs that we have, we can see a kid talks 11% more in their physics yeah, class. Yeah. This is an interest we should, we should uh, help uh, flourish, right? That's just something that you cannot do, or at least it's way harder to do when you're not in a, a remote classroom. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's definitely a lot harder for sure. Um, Jeffrey, how do you, I mean, I, I mean, it sounds like you have a, I mean, it, it sounds like what you have is a kind of content platform. So I'm not sure if, um, I'm going to elicit the same sort of radicalism from you, but I'm just curious as to your thoughts. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, uh, I, I agree with you that I feel like, I mean, if we're, we're at 1%, if even at 1% of what's possible, um, I, I would say for us, like we're online, we're hybrid. So, you know, you're, yep. there's online, there's online learning paired with offline, um, 
learning activities that you do. But one benefit for us of moving away from the boxes is that all of our projects connect kids asynchronously with experts that they can learn from. So when you're studying the brain, you meet um, Dr. Jones, who's a neuroscientist from Columbia. And when you're studying like the impact of uh, cobalt, uh, I'm sorry, uh, coltan mining in the Congo, you're learning from experts from like Grace Gorilla's uh, conservation center in the Congo. And so like that, that's something that like starts to break down the walls of the classroom because kids are able to learn from and exposed to careers and experts. But I think a lot of what, ed tech so far has done is kind of like digitize the analog way of doing things like there's a lot that like replicates worksheets or road practice or like sort of helps take your practice within the walls of your classroom to the next level but you know 10 years from now less more like why like why do we need to have the barriers of one teacher with one group of kids in one room for the entire day like there are a lot of really small schools and districts. Like I went to a very small high school and you can only offer so much in that high school because you have the constraints of what the faculty there can teach. Um, but you know, if you could, if you could learn outside of the school, if you could take courses from people on the other side of the world, like I just think there's so much potential if we sort of unbundle um, kind of like the, the unit of where learning has to happen and who has to be sort of the mediator to provide that to you. And for us right now, we're trying to we're trying to be sort of the bridge, which is how can I do sort of more real world relevant learning within the current structure? How can I use that type of learning to bridge me towards a different structure? Like so, a more traditional classroom right now might have um, more students doing a similar thing, where a more progressive space might have more kids choosing their own projects and doing something totally different. And so, what we what we kind of want to do is like be a be a bridge that can help people go from where we are to where we could go, and then sort of grow in parallel with that to support that type of learning and innovation. But I feel like you're you're right. There's so much potential to unlock access for kids and we're, we're only just starting to dip our toes our toes in the water yeah i mean the access the kind of access point, i mean access in terms of um um educators point is a huge i mean just to kind of bridge um the kind of like cameras in classrooms and access like um one of the most interesting pedagogical experiments that we've kind of had our own iterations on and toyed on toyed with that I, that i know of is a montessori school in crown heights this like strange interesting orthodox jewish very very montessori school um very experimental school um installed ca a camera in a classroom for the express purpose of connecting um this classroom had a special needs student that they were that the teacher was kind of struggling to deliver value to and they're like fine we'll just like stream this classroom to like an expert at the university of chicago who is like very very good um whose kind of like whole specialty is dealing with the um the kind of you know learning disability that the student had and um and it went great and it went so well that eventually all the teachers wanted cameras in their classrooms because they all wanted to be connected with experts and they all wanted that kind of advice and um pretty soon the entire the entire school was wired and, the, and it was the teachers that were asking for it and it's like i mean th these are teachers of, of younger students for the most part but it's just like a, a kind of teacher's version of like students should be asking like like how do you kind of make that value real to students such that it's like people are accessible like you can talk to whoever you want you can learn from whoever you want um and that should be part of school it shouldn't be some sort of extra thing that you do at home kind of on the side you know apart from school it's like a core part of learning is learning how to kind of connect with that expertise and you can do that right now on the internet it's just like we haven't figured out how to interpolate that with school i, I that was a wonderful example i think that's super cool uh it's very hard 
do anything other than exactly what you did, which is have a human watch and derive insights from it in a very real time manner. That's amazing with cameras, but we can already, and we do not have, we've not been around nearly as long as, uh, as you all and have not had enough time to, um, to kind of reverse engineer this, but the fact we're online has allowed us to get to a point where we can already make incredible insights to support teachers. Like, uh, did you know, Miss or educator, that you're in your classes, 58% uh, of the talk time is for students who identify as male. It's like, you can do these things incredibly easily just with the tools that we already have. And that is day one, step one, in what an online education in a classroom in the cloud, as you might say, um, can deliver about how they can deliver value to both our students and faculty. Yeah, that, no, that's super awesome. I mean, there, there's a lot of, um, I just did a teacher training on Socratic seminars and, and one of the, um, one of the ways there, there are different ways to measure Socratic seminars. One of them is like, you kind of track like who talked to who and who responded to what. And like you have an observer, make a map of the seminar, kind of like Harkness map. They kind of look like spider webs. If people are sitting in a, in a um, circular table and it's a, it's a valuable tool if you kind of look at it afterwards in terms of evaluating um engagement and the flow of conversation and reflecting on how to have more productive conversations but it's a pain like even just just that it's like you need an observer they need to be like tracking the conversation with colored pencils and like labeling things and like that that kind of thing has always just struck me as like yeah if you're like having a class on zoom you could just like generate a graph and like you know just look at it afterwards and it would be automated and you could then do analysis on it i mean all the things that you're talking about Kara. just i agree that it seems like really promising that ties back to something that we've we've learned which is being able to provide objective data on uh performance but also just give quantitative tips to faculty like that to educators is a huge advantage so in most performance reviews or or professional development or mentorship or peer training, whatever you want to call it. Uh, usually it's about vibes and it's, you know, here's something I observed that we can work on. At Sora, we go, you know, 40% of your students didn't talk. You have only 20% of your students registered for your next expedition. It's, it's this incredible visibility and then compare it against your peers. That is, it seems basic, but treating educators like you, giving them the data and, and the mentorship you would like a salesperson or one of those other process oriented jobs is it feels to me like a zero to one moment. Yeah, no, that's really awesome. Um, okay. So thank you both so much for joining me. Um, I, uh, I love learning about what you're doing, Jeffrey, always good to hear about more about Sora schools. It sounds like you're doing some new and exciting things. Like there was, there was some new stuff for me there, Garrett. Um, how can people find more about you? How should people follow you? How, how do you want to plug yourselves, um, Garrett? SoarSchools.com. We have a rolling admissions period. So if it sounds like something that a middle schooler or a high schooler in your life would benefit from, go to the website. We can get an admissions call um, done ASAP. And if you're a teacher or a school who's dying to try out Jeffrey's projects, how, how, should, they, how should they go about finding you? Um, uh, RockbyRock.com. Um, we have a free trial on the site. There's also an email address. And if you reach out with questions, we'll follow up and we're happy to chat with anybody who wants to learn more. That's awesome. Um, thank you both so much. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Have a good evening, everyone.